Well, good morning, friends. And I'm sorry I can't be there with you in person uh, here on this video, of course, but can't be there in person because we did have a positive uh, case of COVID in our household this week. And so we're trying to take the necessary precautions. Now, looking back at last week, as we get into this morning's sermon, uh, we had deacons and elders spread across uh, the stage and we welcomed them into their new role of leadership, uh, particularly praying for them, but asking questions uh, as they answer God's call and respond to that call. Uh, God empowers and equips them for the work ahead for these next three years. But in their service and in these questions that we ask them as they prepare for that service, there's two questions we don't ask that might have been asked of an ancient faith leader, particularly as we read through the book of Judges. One being this, we don't ask elders and deacons today if they're handy with a sword. And we don't ask them if they're adept at warfare or engaging in war. Of course, those would have been qualities that would have been necessary as we read the stories in the book of Judges, but not for our own faith leaders in the present. So there's a bit of distance that exists for us as we go to the book of Judges, and it's important for us to acknowledge that ahead of time. But at the same time, we also need to recognize that the ancients discovered something in their situation, in their circumstances, uh, that could be particularly helpful to us in our own day and age. Now, before we get to that, we need to acknowledge also there's some tensions that exist within the book, or at least things that we hold in tension. Remember last week, I talked about how there's a cycle that exists in Judges that repeats itself over and over and over again, that God's people amidst their own unfaithfulness, and of course, amidst their the related consequences that come with that, they cry out or they groan uh, to God, and God raises up a deliverer. God hears those cries and raises up a deliverer for them. The people then are liberated, and they from that, they now live in subsequent peace uh, in the land, at least for a time. Each one of the judges dies, and then the cycle repeats itself. Of course, one of the great consequences here that exists is that these people are crying out for relief from the brutal treatment of, at the hands of their neighbors. And the question we might ask here is, well, then why place them amidst people that don't share the same conviction or commitments? Why are they placed amongst these neighboring nations? And the author of Judges will clear that up for us actually at the end of chapter 2 saying this, in order to test Israel, whether or not they would take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their ancestors did, the Lord had left those nations, not driving them out at once, and had not handed them over to Joshua to test Israel. To test Israel, the Lord left those nations. Wait a minute, you mean to tell me that God is involved in this? That God is in on this? That's exactly what the author is saying. And for some, that might be a troubling notion. In fact, we hear at the very beginning of our text in verse 7, that those who are serving foreign gods are now, in verse 8, made to serve these foreign tyrants. That God empowered the foreign adversary, and the same God also raises up the deliverer. That's mind-boggling. The suffering and the salvation are both under and within view of our Creator. Judges holds both of these in tension with one another, that these both exist. Related here is the presence of both grace and consequence. In Judges, God raises up bad characters as a consequence of the people's bad behavior. In our text, we'll see King Kushan, we'll also see Eglon, King of Moab, as being folks that are strengthened or empowered uh, as adversaries to God's people. But then God also extends grace. God will extend grace to his people, raising up deliverers when the people cry out for relief. And of course, this kind of tension that we see that exists with grace and consequences is the same type of thing we might see in a story like Les Mis. Uh, it's, it pokes, those stories poke around at these things, and it certainly raises questions for us. And, and that's why we call them a place of tension. And those, the questions that we have are never, ever really totally answered in this life. 
but we have to acknowledge they do both exist. And that's the thing about things we hold in tension. We don't always have answers for why they exist that way. We just know that they do exist. And we see that here in Judges. But what we also know, and what might be a large category for us to discover here that the ancients discovered, and that we're not to miss, is that God is in control. Whether it's in the bad time or the good time, whether it's in the defeat or the victory, we're to hear from this author and judges and what the ancients discovered is that God is in control. And as one who's in control, of course, the question we have to ask now is a third maybe tension point for us is why would God call the people that God chooses to serve as these deliverer judges? As the book goes on, we'll start asking that question more and more. But why does God choose those people? Of course, the first of these two delivered judges in our own text sounds like what we might expect. This is the what I imagine to be the proverbial high school, most likely to become a deliverer judge uh, category. And of course, Othniel, son of Kenaz, uh, fits that bill. He fills out that bill uh, for at least a couple of reasons. One is he comes from the right family. We'll see that from the author there. They note that uh, this, this particular character, Othniel, has a relationship to the prominent figure, Caleb. And we'd expect that uh, someone who's in this role would come from a place of prominence, or at least uh, be able to trace their line uh, to something significant like that. We see that uh, made clear in chapter one. We see it made clear in our text, of course, and it's also made clear in Josh in the book of Joshua. But we also know here that Othniel, if you read these stories, it's his initiative and it's his ability that also doubles down on this relationship to Caleb in that he has the ability to marry Caleb's daughter. And in our text, we'll see a second uh, characteristic of Othniel showing up, that he demonstrates the right kind of ability. So he doesn't just come from the right background, but he also has the right tools to be this person that serves in this capacity. But know what 10 tells us is the source of those abilities, and that's important. And this is what pokes at that idea that God is in control here. It says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, he has the ability not only to be victorious and successful in battle, as we might expect with kind of a, someone who's adept at war, but what we have here is someone who is able to provide leadership, that he judged Israel. And the author is careful to note that whether it's the judging and leadership or it's in the battle, again, to note that it's, Lord who, it's the Lord who's credited with the ability and the victory here. But if that wasn't enough, uh, here's a couple other things for us to consider about Othniel. Of course, he's a, a deliverer judge. He's empowered by God, and he's from the tribe of Judah. Now, by itself, those categories of someone who's in kind of this leadership role, uh, who is adept at, at warfare and has been empowered by God, and who's from the tribe of Judah, that should start striking some notes for us as we think biblical characters. But note this, if we said that this person's ability uh, in warfare or in battle wins in the hand of a prominent leader's daughter, if I didn't have the names in front of you right now, and I say, hey, who is this person? Who is this person that is a, a warrior leader, powered by God from the tribe of Judah, who wins the hand of a prominent figure's daughter because of their, their battle prowess? Who do you think I'm talking about? Sure, you could say Othniel, but a bigger name you probably remember is King David, because that's exactly what happened in King David's life when he wins the hand of Saul's daughter by demonstrating his own prowess in battle. There's certainly a model here for us to hear in this character of Othniel early on in the book of Judges. Of course, the second judge that we read, Ehud, is something a little bit different uh, picture than what we see with Othniel. 
Now, this this past week, uh, if you've been reading the news, you probably saw this story about the recent death of someone that I imagine personally is kind of an unlikely hero or someone that you would uh, call a hero or guess as a hero. His first name is Magawa, um, and he was a trained operator working uh, as part of a team that would uh, find and clear mines, uh, landmines in Cambodia. And this particular uh, character or operator is credited with helping to find over 100 mines and explosives during his career. And at one point, he was actually awarded a medal uh, because of his bravery and in recognition of his extraordinary ability. But we've got to keep in mind here, uh, the part that makes him an unlikely hero is the fact that this person's a rat. No, not, not like in character, like this person actually is a rat. Magawa is an African giant pouched rat, and that's what the news story was talking about. And they called him this hero rat. And so sometimes we see that in life. We see folks that are we say are unlikely or the least likely to be this champion or this hero. Um, and like Magawa, Ehud, in some ways, as I read the story, uh, strikes me as being almost unlikely to be a hero, almost like when you think about Othniel. Othniel is the most likely. Ehud doesn't seem as likely to have been called to be this deliverer judge. We hear that in verse 15. One of the places of reason for this is verse 15. We learn that he's left-handed. Now, you might say, wait a second, Jimmy. Being a southpaw doesn't automatically disqualify you uh, from being a leader. We know that almost, I think it's seven or eight U.S. presidents have actually been left-handed. So it doesn't necessarily disqualify you from being a leader. But the language behind this idea of being left-handed, what we have translated uh, left-handed, is one who is restricted as to his right hand. And in the eyes of his contemporaries, um, so folks uh, from Israel at that time, they would have understood this as being a physical defect. Um, and it's possible, as one uh, commentator will note, uh, that it might have been more than just kind of looking down on left-handedness. It might have actually been by virtue of a deformity to his right hand, which would then uh, give us the understanding of why Eglon puts his guard down when Ehud wants to meet with him privately. Whatever the case, though, Ehud is effective in battle, and we, we see that right away. Um, and as gruesome as this story is, and it is a gruesome story, the author is making certain that the reader knows that this deliverer was raised by God as well. And we hear that right from the beginning of the story. But then at the very end of the story, Ehud makes sure that we know exactly where the victory came from. He says, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. The people are not to make any mistake, and readers are not to make any mistake. That is God who is in control, and it's God who provides the victory. So we've got the book of Judges, and we've got these two stories. Things in tension, grace and consequences, suffering and salvation. And we have delivered judges raised up and empowered by God, enabled to lead God's people and to be victorious in battle. But what do we do with all that in our own day and age? Like, how does that work for us? We're not, we're not in this type of situation where we're constantly being bombarded with enemies on every border attacking us, and we have to raise up uh, these kind of powerful champion leaders to go out and fight for us. Well, if you read the news this past week, if you're following news over the last several weeks, uh, you know there's been reports from the Korean Peninsula that yet another missile test. Uh, these seem to be coming uh, at different times. They come in groupings, and they, they raise the level of fear and alertness that needs to be taken uh, by militaries around the world, including our own uh, strategic defenses. Of course, Russian troops are amassing on the border of Ukraine and have been uh, for a few weeks now. Uh, there's talk about... Uh, conflict that's coming and uh, provocations and all that sort of thing. 
cyber attacks are happening around the globe all the time and they're concentrating themselves around particular locations uh, where we might say are kind of these hotbeds for war and struggle. Uh, we see that in our own systems uh, around this country where people uh, attack them through cyber attacks. The drumbeat of war continues to grow ever louder and louder with each passing day. And it does so in a day when our anxieties are already at fever pitch. The possibility of more bad news on the horizon seems to come with each and every passing day. The ancients would say the same thing to us that they said in their own day. They would say, even so, God is in control. And when they talk about that, and when we talk about God being in control, we're now in a category, a theological category, where we talk about the sovereignty of God. And it's a characteristic and a theme that we hear in Scripture. And it's something that we understand about our Creator, that God is in control, that God's dominion reigns regardless of the circumstances, whether it's in good times or bad times, whether it's in the moment of consequence or it's in the place of salvation, that God is still in control. And that is a place of comfort for the ancients then and for us moderns now. In fact, one commentator uh, observed this. He writes, it is a comforting thought in these days of nuclear power to realize that God still orders and controls the destinies of nations and overrules the decisions of world rulers, including the most arrogant and atheistic among them. And so the news of our day might be the cause of great concern. I mean, we're human after all. In fact, I was reading a, an article this last week by David Brooks, a New York Times op-ed writer, who wrote uh, about America falling apart at the seams. And his article goes through and catalogs different places where America, the wheels seem to be coming off in different parts of our society. But even still, even still, God is in control. He still is and always has been. And so for uh, God's people, for people everywhere, we are to take comfort. And knowing that the one uh, who is in control also hears us and responds and cares for us and has raised up a deliverer that we might know life even in the midst of death, that we might see light in the midst of darkness. Friends, may we see that and discover that each and every day, even in these days, especially in these days.